pray. Father, we agree, we understand, and we even celebrate the the incredible truth that mighty, awesome, and wonderful is the cross where Jesus laid down his life, where he was sacrificed in our place for our sin. Father, that's where the victory was won. That's where our victory was won. Father, and, and we, as Scott said, we take no credit for it, but, but we embrace the gift that it is, Father. We, we trust your son, Jesus Christ, as the sufficient sacrifice for all of our sins. Father, I don't know if anybody else has noticed, but it seems to me that from the very moment our service began this morning, there's a theme that's been running through, and it's a theme of victory. The victory of Christ and the victory of the cross and, and the hope and the grace and the mercy that's, that's offered, freely offered to us in him and what he did. Father, I think that's why Paul in Galatians chapter 6, where he said, May it never be that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we boast this morning not in who we are, not in what we've done. Father, not even in, in the things that you do through us. We boast in one thing. Father, we rejoice in one thing alone, and that's that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in our place as a sacrifice for sin. That he dealt with your wrath, that he washed our sins away, and we can stand before you this morning, Father, not perfect, but forgiven. And Father, I pray that as we turn our attention now to your word, that you would just continue to, to drill deep into our hearts. Father, the things not that I want to say, not that the, the songs are intended to communicate, Father, but what you want us to hear and what you want us to do. Father, for that to happen, as always, we need the help of your mighty and wonderful Holy Spirit to come and guide us in truth, because your word is truth, to guard us from error, because, Father, we don't want to be led astray, to deliver us from apathy and pride and indifference and broken hearts and all that stuff that gets in the way, so that in this time, these moments together, we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see him only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, we want to leave in a little while rejoicing. Again, not in us, not in, in anything but Jesus, who loved us enough to lay his life down. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are, we'll allow the boys and girls to leave for Children's Church. This morning, if you've got boys and girls, five-year-olds, up to second graders, they can head right out that door and right up the steps. As they get into God's Word, and we're going to do the same, I'd invite you to turn with me as they're uh, making their way out to Psalm 51. I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 51 as we continue in this look, this sort of survey, if you will, of of the book of Psalms as we're asking God and, and seeking God to use His Word to teach us to pray, to teach us to pray from His Word, through His Word. Uh, and find his heart in the process. So find your way to Psalm 51, and, and you know, as a, as, a, as a preacher, it's always, at any time you're in front of a group speaking, it's always kind of nice to know where you stand with those you are speaking to. So as you're making your way to Psalm 51, I need to do, I know you're tired of polls, you've had a week free of them, I'm going to take a poll by a show of hands anyway. All right, number one, Denver Broncos, who's in? All right, number two, Carolina Panthers, who's in? All right, you're outnumbered. Number three, who's sitting here saying, I didn't know the World Series started today? <laughs> There you go. I got one hand on that one. Right on. At least I know who I'm working with and maybe who I'm working against this morning. I'm not telling you where I'm coming from. Not yet. You can find that in the bulletin, though. We're going to look at Psalm 51. We're going to read it together in a moment. But to set the scene, Psalm 51, one of the things that makes Psalm 51 unique is that compared to all of the other psalms recorded in, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 51 may be the one 
where we know more about the story behind it than any other psalm in the Bible. We just have a lot of the story to work from. And the story, for those of you who know it but want to be refreshed, and those of you who may never have heard it before and and need to know what it is, is this. It's the story of the fall of God's servant, King David. And as I've thought about it this week, it's occurred to me that perhaps nowhere else in the Bible, and maybe even nowhere else in the history of the church, in the history of God's people, do we have, do we know, the story of a believer who has fallen as far, as fast, and as hard as David did. I know other people have sinned worse. I know other people have sinned more. But few people have gone from such lofty heights to such incredibly low depths. Because David's story, simply put, is this. For most of his life, the Old Testament tells us that he really was who God said he was, the man after God's own heart. He's the guy we know when he was a shepherd boy with a, with a stone and a sling struck down the, the evil giant uh, Goliath. We know that David was the guy, as he grew up, spent more than a decade on the run from wicked King Saul. King Saul wanted him dead, tried to kill him many times. David had opportunities uh, to reciprocate, to, to put Saul to death, but he wouldn't do it because he was a man of honor and integrity. And he said, God put Saul on the throne. I'm not going to be the one who takes him out through my actions. We know that David was the guy who who did, in fact, compose nearly half of the Psalms in this book. He was a worshiper. He was a man who knew God well and knew how to worship and pray and and, and praise him. We know that David as king was the, the one who consolidated all of Israel's 12 tribes into one mighty nation. He made Jerusalem the center of worship. Uh, He led worship by his example with an exuberant and a joyful heart. In short, if if you look at the life of David through most of the Old Testament, what you discover about him is that he really was the kind of guy that every Israelite mom and dad wanted their little boy to grow up and be like. He was a man after God's own heart. But then in a single, compelling account recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11. And and I would encourage you to take time to read 2 Samuel 11 if you've never read it before. What David did is he destroyed it all. David went and destroyed it all in a swift succession of events that never should have started in the first place and which along the way he had opportunity after opportunity to shut down, to stop, to repent, to turn around. David began by, by, by seeing and coveting another man's wife. Stealing her for himself, committing adultery with her. Through that adulterous encounter, the woman became pregnant. David realized he was going to be found out, so he tried to cover it up. And having already coveted and stolen and committed adultery, then he arranged to have the woman's husband, a valiant man, a man who was loyal to David, read the story, like few others, had arranged for that man to be murdered. And he was put to death on the field of battle by David's own hand and David's own design. And then the Bible shows us that David spent the next year of his life trying to cover it up. Keeping it a secret. Keeping it under wraps. Until in 2 Samuel 12, his friend the prophet Nathan came to him. Called him out. Said, David, you're the man. God knows what you've done. And, and I may not know all you, but I'm coming to deliver a message that you have sinned against the Lord And David, 2 Samuel 12 tells us, was literally driven to his knees in repentance. And on that day, when that happened, David began to pray. And the prayer he prayed upon coming clean before the Lord is what we know and what we call Psalm 51. So look at your Bible. Let's read this prayer. And we're just going to spend the remainder of our time 
walking through it this morning. Here's how David prayed when Nathan came to him and he confessed. He said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your love and kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you, Lord, desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. And young bulls will be offered on your altar. Now real quick, I want you to remember or to let those of you who are visiting know what it is we are doing here in the Psalms because lots of ways to look at the Psalms. But as we work our way through a series of Psalms in these weeks and these studies in God's Word together, what we are seeking to do above all else is to discover how to use the Psalms as they were originally meant to be used and have always have been through thousands of years of church history as instruments for prayer. To teach us, to guide us, and to instruct us in conversing with God in any and every season of life. And you don't need me to tell you, one single reading of Psalm 51 shows all of us that, that, what's, that this particular psalm teaches us to do is how to pray when we have blown it. How we pray when we know we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In big ways or small ways in our own lives. And while we may not, heaven forbid, find ourselves sinning to the degree and in the manner and to the depth and the extent that David did here, maybe some of us have, maybe some of us are. But even if we're not, I think there's actually great encouragement in the fact that David wrote this psalm in the worst of all possible sinful situations. Not in a, well, I mean, and I know it's all relative to us, it's all sin to God, but we say, you know, there's big sins and little sins and there's really consequential, but listen, this is about as bad as it gets, and I'm encouraged that that's when David wrote this psalm, because you know what it means? It means if David could go to God with what he did, I can go to God with what I've done. You can go to God with what you do. And if God can forgive David, God can forgive you. God can forgive me. Because this is about, if you look at it, as bad as it can get in a believer's life. So let's see. Let's look at Psalm 51 and see how David prayed. What did David say when he went to God? And see what we can learn about conversing with God when we have blown it in our lives and we know it. Once again, four things, the first of which is this. In verse 1, David begins with a cry. It's a plea 
It's a prayer. It's how he begins uh, this uh, conversation. And it's very, very simple. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. David starts his prayer, Have mercy on me. And if you think about it, what else is he going to say? What else is David going to say in this situation? He knew what he'd done. He knew how God felt about it. He knew that sin always has consequences. And he knew that, that he deserved to be punished and and to be ruined. David knew how, it's clear just reading the psalm, he knew how terribly he'd sinned against the Lord, and as such, he also knew exactly what he needed. He needed, as every other English translation of, the, uh, uh, of this psalm says, other than the one I just read from, mine says, be gracious to me. Yours probably says, mercy. That's a better translation. David needed mercy. David knew what I need in this hour is mercy. As, as, the, as the Hebrew, the original Hebrew term for mercy expresses, David knew that he needed God to stoop down to him in kindness and show him favor. Mercy means to stoop down in kindness and show someone undeserved favor. David just said, oh God, have mercy on me. But if you look closer at verse 1, I want you to notice something with me. That while that's the cry he started with, that was a cry of David's heart. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. Forgive me for the wrong things I have done. I want you to notice that the focus of David's prayer in this first verse isn't nearly so much on the wrong that he had done. He's acknowledging that he's done wrong. He's confessing he had done wrong. But that's not his focus. His focus really, if you look at it in verse 1, is much more on the goodness of the God to whom he was coming. Look again at what he says in verse 1. Be gracious, have mercy on me, O God. Here's the rest of the verse. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. In other words, Lord, I've blown it. I know it. And, and Lord, more on that in just a moment, all right? Verse 2 onward, we'll talk about what I did. But David starts by saying, but at the same time, here's what I know. I know you are a God, the NIV puts it, of unfailing love. I know that you are a God of incredible, abundant compassion. And so, Lord, I'm going to start this conversation. I'm going to start praying in my worst possible sinful season by dwelling, not first of all on what I've done, but on who you are. On the kind of God to whom I'm bringing my repentance. I'll begin with, what do we always begin with when we pray? With worship with a focus on the Lord. And listen, David didn't do that in order to somehow get the spotlight off of what he'd done. God, I don't really want to talk about, let's not, let's not bring up what I, I want to, let's just talk about you, Jesus. No, that's not what he's doing here. It's not so he can evade responsibility or guilt or attention. No, what David is doing and going to the Lord is he's leaning on. He's relying on what God said about himself hundreds of years earlier in Exodus 34. You know, through the scriptures, God revealed himself in different ways to a lot of different people. He probably never revealed himself prior to Christ more personally than he did to Moses. Moses said, show me your glory. God said, I'll let you see part of it. And in that moment, when God revealed himself to Moses like he'd never revealed himself to anyone before, here's what God said about himself. Of all the things God could have said in that moment, here is what God said, Exodus 34, 6, write it down and remember it. The Lord passed by in front of him and said, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
David was just running to what he knew about God. He said, Lord, this is what you've said about yourself. And, and I've been in a lot of situations where I've needed grace and compassion and mercy and kindness. I've never needed it more than now. So I'm just going to rely on who you said you are. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your abundant compassion. According to your great mercy. And you know, by starting that way, David... God, through David, teaches us what really is a crucial biblical truth. And this may surprise you. This may be one you want to chew on a little bit. But I think something David teaches us, or God uses David's prayer here to teach us, is this. Listen to me. God does not forgive us simply upon the basis of how sorry we can try to show him that we are. God doesn't forgive us based on the the number of tears we shed or the the days we go without eating, the nights we go without sleeping, uh, the fervent and passionate prayers that we pray to show him how terribly guilty we feel. God does not forgive us on that basis. You know what basis God forgives us on? His mercy. God forgives us when we come to him with our sin because because it is his very nature to do so. I'm not making that up. Read verse 1 again. Look at what he says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to, on account of, because of your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my iniquity. Listen, repentance is essential. And we're going to see all about repentance here in just about a minute and a half. But before we get there, Understand this. David was plenty sorry. But what his opening lines in this prayer show us is that God forgives us because it's his nature to do so. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's willing. The New Testament says that none should perish, right? But that all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If it were up to me, I could never be sorry enough. If it's up to him, his grace is enough. His grace is enough. So having blown it as badly as possible, David simply begins with, Lord, have mercy because you are merciful and I'm relying on who you've said you are. You say, well, what about repentance? Well, that's the next part of the prayer. Because David begins by saying, number one, Lord, have mercy. Secondly, the second part of his prayer in the next few verses is because, here's why I need you to have mercy. Secondly, because what I've discovered is I am the problem. (laughs) Lord, have mercy, because I am the problem here, and no one else. And there are really two things in the next couple of verses that make it clear that David knew that. First of all is just, if you look at verse 2 with me, his repeated use and emphasis upon the first person. He started by focusing on God, but then look at when he turns the camera to himself, what he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Behold, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That is, I've been a sinner from birth, and even before. That's who I am. That's what I'm like. Not only that, look at at all the different, just in those same verses I just read to you, look at all the different terms David uses to describe what he'd done, the terrible things he'd done. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 5 again, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Here's my point. No excuses are being made. David is making no excuses. He's not casting blame. He's not going, well, Lord, you know, she really, Bathsheba, that's the name of the woman he committed adultery with, she really shouldn't have been bathing where I could have seen her in the first place. You know, God, I really isn't all that much my fault. 
God, you don't know what kind of pressure. I've been so good for so long. I've been the man of your own heart. Everybody messes up sometimes. Not how David prayed. Have mercy on me. I am the problem. I sinned. And not only that, verse 4, I know who it is I've really sinned against. Verse 4. Against you, you only, I've sinned and done what's evil in your sight. About 20 years ago, there was a uh, was kind of a street criminal crook in New York City. He went around snatching the purses of little old ladies. True story. Just mug ladies, steal their cash, steal their wallet, steal their purse. One day, he, he stole the purse, this particular thief did, of a 94-year-old woman who was walking down the sidewalk in Greenwich Village. Only this time he got caught. And he kind of had a track record. They knew who this guy was. Apparently the police did. But they caught him. And when the arresting officer threw him in the squad car and began driving him off to the precinct to book him, along the way, for some reason, he said, he said, you know, whatever this guy's name was, you today picked the wrong lady's purse to snatch. And the guy said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, the name of the woman you ju- whose purse you just stole, her name is Yolanda Gigante. That name may not mean anything to you, but her son, Vincent, should. Because Vincent Gigante is Vinny the Chin. He's <laughs> head of the Genovese crime family, the biggest mafia outfit in New York City. You just messed with someone a whole lot bigger than you ever imagined you were messing with. You thought you were stealing a purse from a little old lady. You just took on the mafia and you're in trouble. And David's saying the same thing here. I sinned against Bathsheba, with Bathsheba. I sinned against Uriah. I sinned against all these other people. But ultimately, that's all sort of, if we may say so, small potatoes compared to the fact that I've sinned against God. I've broken his commandments. And when sin gets a grip in our lives, listen, as believers, when sin gets a grip in our lives, David's prayer here shows us that the only way out, everybody say, the only way out, The only way out is to realize that it is God we have sinned against most. And here's what we have to do if we want out. We have to look at the two sides. Here's what I did. Here's who God is. And and we need to choose his side against ourselves. Here's what I did and who I am and how I want to justify what I've been doing. Here's who God is and he's always been and here's how he feels about it. I think I'm on God's side. Against me! (laughs) Because against you and you only. Have I sinned? We must pray, Lord, I am the problem. Why? Because, again, verse 1, because he's gracious, because he's compassionate. And and when we repent, he really will answer. He really will forgive. Not only that, I believe when we repent, when we come clean before God, when we've blown it and we know it, and we're willing to say, Lord, have mercy, I am the problem. I not only believe God, I know God forgives us, that's what his word says, I also believe He's willing to answer the request as David moves into request that David offered next, beginning in verse 7. Because he starts by saying as he needed to, Lord, have mercy. He began by admitting as he needed to, I am the problem. And then here's how I believe David was praying in the next several verses, 7 through 13. And Lord, don't let what I've done be wasted. Don't let what I've just been through and done, committed, sinned, repented of, be wasted. You know, nothing is harder, nothing is harder, Christian or not, than going through life, carrying around a secret you hope never gets out. 
nothing harder than that. Covering your tracks, keeping quiet, biting your tongue. And if you know what that's like, and I bet you do, because we've all been there, you also know what it's like to have a list of very compelling reasons built up of why coming clean isn't worth it. It'd just be too costly. It'd just be too hard. You know what it's like to say to yourself, what good could possibly come from me finally admitting what I've been up to, what I did, how I've behaved? What good could come from that? You know what that's like. Some of you, frankly, may be thinking that this morning. And you're right, sort of. Coming clean would be hard. It will be costly. Because you're going to hurt people you love. It's going to damage your reputation. And that's just in the first five minutes after you spill what you've been up to. Let me ask you something. Is carrying it around really any better? Is it? You having fun? Is it an enjoyable way? I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Let's see what David thought about it. Remember, he kept his sin secret for a year. How do I know that? Because it says, Nathan came and confronted him, and he confessed. And shortly after that, the baby he and Bathsheba conceived was born. That's about a year. He's carrying the secret around with them, covering his tracks, trying to keep it quiet. What did that year of, of, of hiding sin do to him? Just look at it again. We're just going to survey verse 7 down to about verse 12 or 13. Well, first of all, I guess from verse 7, he felt dirty because what does he say? Purify me. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. I think he was depressed. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Why? Because there ain't been a whole lot of joy and gladness in my life lately. I've been running scared. I think David was dealing with actual physical pain-type consequences of what he'd done. Because what does he say in the rest of verse 8? Let the bones with you, which you have broken rejoice. God's not saying, God, David's not saying God busted my legs because of what I did. He's saying what I'm carrying around inside, it hurts. I can tell you that's true from personal experience. I've hidden a few things, and it has affected me physically. Maybe you know that as well. We're not going to start, start telling sordid stories to and about one another, but listen, it, it takes a toll. Verse 11, he's fearful. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, I'm afraid based on what I... I saw what happened to Saul. You took your Holy Spirit from him. I'm scared. Verse 12, he's joyless and unsettled. Why? Because he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. I've been looking out of the corner of my eyes, looking over my shoulder, watching my... I can't sleep. Can't eat. And if you read the rest of David's story in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 12, you'll see coming clean had a price. It wasn't easy. But here's the thing, listen to me. His confession still wasn't a waste. It wasn't the wrong thing to do. Because look again at what those verses we just looked at where he was talking about or at least expressing the agony that sin was, was, was inflicting upon him. But but look at his confidence at the same time in those same verses of how God would answer again because he knew who God was. Purify me, verse 7, go back to verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 10, so beautiful. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. That word create, it's the same word create from Genesis 1.1. What did God do in Genesis 1.1? He created a whole universe out of nothing. 
Create in me something brand new. Because what's there right now is a mess. Create, and he's confident that God will. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then look at this. Not only that, not just heal me, cleanse me, forgive me. He says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with the willing spirit so that I can teach transgressors, fellow sinners, your ways. And so that they will be converted to you. What's David asking? He's saying, he's saying, Lord, I understand that you can use my whole story. The pinnacle, the valley, the restoration, where we are now. You can use all of us to show others how truly merciful you are. You can use it to show others. Because what could David now stay? He could stand before the entire nation of Israel and say, listen, if God can forgive me, he can forgive you. I'm not proud of what I've done. I'm not celebrating what I've done. But having told you or confessed to what I've done, I can say his grace really is sufficient. His mercy really is. He really is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Listen, I have, I can tell any stories, but I've sat on both sides of, of more than a few confessions. I've listened to confessions and I've made confessions about secrets and about sins and about unpleasant stuff. And one thing, in one way or another, I've always heard, and I've even said, is that while, and this is sort of the way the story goes, I'm ashamed of what I did, and I know the road ahead won't be easy, but here's what I hear time after time. But I am so thankful to be free. I am so thankful that at least I'm free, that this sin and this secret doesn't rule my life anymore. Because confession is good for the soul. And that's how God breaks the chains. And David's prayer, David's story, along with many others represented in this room, proves that when we are willing to say, Lord, have mercy on me, I know I'm the problem, and I'm ready to come clean, here's the promise. What you've done won't be wasted. God will use it. If you let him, God will use it to teach others who he is and what he's like, what he's done, how he works. What we've done won't be wasted because that's God's business, redemption. And, trans, and far from it, in fact. In fact, because the last part of David's prayer, it's, it's, it's kind of strange. The language doesn't seem to fit. There's one more thing David does in this prayer. It seems like after, to me, after verse 13, he could have stopped. Sinners will be converted. We'll all praise the Lord. It'll be good. But then he continues to pray. And there's a lot of things he says at the end of this prayer but I think if you sum it up all up, what David, where, the, where the, the train of thought is going is this. Again, have mercy on me because I'm the problem. I've sinned, I've blown it, and I know it. But I don't want what I've done to be wasted. I want you to use it. And then I think the way David, what he's saying at the end of this prayer, verses 14 down through the end of the psalm, is, and, and Lord, don't stop there. Here, fourth and finally, let all of it lead us to worship. Let all that we've done here lead to worship. How, why do I say that? Why do I think that's the case? Well, before we look at those last couple of verses, I want you to go back up in your Bible, look at your Bible, above verse 1. As we've seen already, many psalms come with some sort of inscription, some sort of biblical word. It's, it's there in the text of, of instruction or clarification, explanation. And there's one in Psalm 51. And at the beginning of Psalm 51, before verse 1, where David starts praying, here's the inscription we're given. For the choir director. 
This is a song for the choir director. It's a psalm of David where Nathan the prophet came to him after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Now, I don't know what you think, but I find that curious. I find that, frankly, weird. That that's what this psalm says. Because it's clearly a psalm of personal confession. It's clearly a conversation with God as raw and as personal and even as messy as prayer can get. And yet, why did David write it? So God's people could sing it together. Really? God wants us to come together and sing about and pray about and, pray and, 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 and talk in, in this kind of way. Yeah, David wanted this to be used for worship. And I think there's clues in these last few verses that's exactly what he meant. Because what does he say in verse 14? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, that my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. That does not sound to me like a solitary activity. Oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise so that I would believe he's saying so that you and others can hear it. Verses 18 and 19. Strange words here. We're like, what are these doing here? By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Righteous sacrifices, burnt offering, and whole burnt offering. Young bulls will be offered on your altar. Honestly, I'm not sure why all that's there, but here's what I do know about it. Those were all things, listen, that God's people did together. Those were acts of worship that God's people did together. And I think what all that means, when you start with the inscription, this is a psalm for the choir director, and it ends with, with, with sort of a demonstration and a call for God's people to take these words and use them in their worship. I think the big picture, one of the big picture lessons is this, that the believing community, we call it the church, is healthier, is stronger, and is a far more vibrant witness to the unbelieving world when we come clean with our sins, when we repent and confess, and everyone in the house is able to say, as David said in verse 15, oh Lord, open my lips, that my mouth, I'm not gonna, I don't want to be quiet anymore, I don't want to be hiding anymore, that my lips, my mouth may declare your praise. I do something with my sin so that we learn to worship you more. We celebrate who you are and what you've done, how you forgive, how you cleanse and set free. And of the many different, very specific points of application we could take from that, the one that really settled in on my heart, and I'll just share it with you, you may see others, and I hope you do, is what that means, therefore, is that the believing community, the church, the place where God's people gather, listen to me, it must be a place where confession is welcome. The church must be a place where it's safe to come clean. It must be. I think that's what David's teaching us here by example. The church needs a place where, where people who, like David, have blown it and they know it can repent before God and whoever else they've wounded and know that while there, of course, there'll be consequences, there will be much more grace. They will be received with grace, they will be shown grace. Sin won't be excused, but it will be forgiven. Because too often, here's my thought, too often down through the history of the church, and praise God, I think so many here have an understanding of grace and God's mercy, but too often down through the history of the church, what's been good enough for God hasn't been good enough for us. God says this in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise, but so often believers have wanted more than that. You better show it. You better work it out. You better cry real hot tears and show us them. You better prove you're sorry. 
God says, I see a broken heart, and I call it enough. I see a repentant heart, and I say, you're forgiven. And I'll work, and I'll transform and restore. So while the first part of this prayer is offered to those of us who've blown it and we know it, I really believe these last few verses are for all of us. The message is, let it all, the sinner's confession, the mercy of God, the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God's people, let all of it lead us to worship. Because here's the big idea of this morning's message. Here's the big idea of Psalm 51. God's grace really is greater than all of our sin. His grace really is greater than all of our, your sin, my sin, everybody's sin. It's greater. Let's trust that what he says here about himself is enough. Father, Father, it's hard to feel like we're rushing through a psalm like this that is so raw and so personal and maybe, Father, to some in the house this morning, so very relevant. Father, we all know what it's like one time or another to carry a secret, a secret sin, to hope it doesn't get out, to hope nobody knows. And Father, some, maybe even here this morning, I don't know who and I don't know what, are doing just that. Father, I pray they would know that this day, not tomorrow, today is the day to come clean. Today is the day to confess, to find a a safe listening ear to ultimately get before you and say, Lord, have mercy, I am the problem. And I don't know what it's going to cost, but I want to be free. I want to be forgiven. I want to know that you're building me back up rather than sin continuing to, to tear me down. Father, if there are brothers or sisters in the house today who, who need that, Father, I pray they'll seek me, someone up here, one of our shepherds or their wives out, and say, I, it, it's time for me to confess. And Father, for the rest of us who've been there and we've received that incredible grace that you offer, the mercy of God that's shown us when we come clean. Father, we praise you that your grace really is enough, that it's greater than all of our sin. Father, that we have seen many of us, many times over, David's story and his prayer played out in our own lives. We sinned, we confessed, it hurt, and you forgave. And then you used what we did to magnify the name of Jesus. Father, as we sang earlier, let mercy reign unending love, amazing grace, that we might all live fully to the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray.